right, happy church. A healthy church is one where there's a lot of fellowship, a lot of excitement, a lot of joy, and a lot of love. Amen? Amen. Let's look to the Lord for his help now, Father God, as we dive into your word and pick up here now in the third missionary journey. Here in the book of Acts, Lord, just a, a basic paragraph that's full of truth to help us understand what is the gospel what is a Christian? What does it mean to be saved and going to heaven? Lord, it's all here for us to learn. So help us, Holy Spirit, uh, to understand these truths and apply them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So have you ever met somebody maybe in a random conversation? Maybe they mentioned that they go to church somewhere, and so you assume that they know the Lord. Uh, but the more you talk... Um, some of their remarks, maybe some of their responses, leaves you wondering if, in fact, they really are Christians after all. What is a Christian? It's an important question, isn't it? Because heaven and hell hang in the balance. At least that's what the Bible says. In this morning's passage here in Acts chapter 19, it's going to shed some light on that very question, the difference between knowing about Jesus, heading in the right direction, uh, from knowing him by experience in a personal and saving way. Acts chapter 19, verse 1. While Apollos was at Corinth in Greece there, he went to follow up on the work that Paul was doing there. And Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus where Apollos just was. And so there's a little bit of switching around there. There he found Paul, the apostle, found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, uh, no, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. <laughs> so Paul asked, well, what kind of baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Oh, Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance that he told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing that, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. We're going to park there because there's so much to talk about, so much clarity, so much good theology, what it means to be saved. And so uh, we get situated here right at the first. We see in verse 1, uh, I actually have a map. I love map, and I love this flamethrower. <laughs> this is the area that was evangelized the first century there. This is the start of everything, all three missionary journeys. You're looking at the region. So the sending church is mostly Gentiles right about here, and they're sending missionaries this way and to here 
and then the gospel is just going to go continue to go that way uh, as a uh, main emphasis there. Now, what the verses opening uh, open with is kind of telling you there's a, a shell game of sorts going on, and that's how they evangelized as teams. Uh, one guy would go here with a team, and others would stay behind. Others would go. Others would uh, kind of replace the guys who had just left, and that's what the opening verse is telling us that. Apollos was in Ephesus. He wanted to go to Corinth. And so we went where Paul had established a church. So he went to pastor there for a while. And while he's pastoring there, Paul the apostle who had gone back to the sending church is now coming up and around to fill in back at Ephesus where Apollos was just working. And so, you know, there are 15 names in the New Testament uh, or more that are associated uh, with Paul, the apostle, traveling with him as a missionary outreach and team. They were all evangelizing, that means telling the good news, uh, pastoring, that means equipping God's people, and discipling, that means Christian mentoring. And all of them were just kind of following the guidance of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit put people in different places with different companions and that kind of thing. Uh, the Holy Spirit was guiding them along. The very one whom these 12 men in Ephesus knew nothing about. So let's get to that and the initial question that Paul asked. He will ask other questions in the text. And so Paul runs into, quote, some disciples. I think this is an important word uh, because it kind of uh, sets the understanding of what the whole passage is about. It's a general term. Uh, He could have said Paul met some brothers. Then we'd all know what's going on. They're Christians. Uh, Paul met some believers. That's the language of the New Testament. But it's kind of rather a little bit odd that he says the more general term, he met some followers. He met some, and we can infer they are following in Christian ways, but uh, I think the context is important here. And so perhaps that's what these guys were calling themselves, these 12, um, uh, calling themselves disciples. And uh, maybe they met Uh, in some little cafe there. They had them uh, enjoying Turkish coffee. After all, they're in Turkey. And uh, maybe they have a scroll open in front and studying because the word disciple means learner or follower. And so maybe that's what's going on. But as far as Paul's concerned, you can call yourself whatever you want. Uh, Paul's interested in one thing and one thing alone. Are you guys saved? That's what he wants to know. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you came to faith? Labels, uh, we love them so. I'm a Catholic, I'm a Protestant, I'm an Anglican, I'm a Methodist, I'm an Episcopalian, I'm a Charismatic, I'm a fourth generation Baptist, (laughs) I'm a Pentecostal, I'm a Calvinist, I'm Reformed, I'm a pre-trib guy, I'm a pastor, I'm a deacon, I'm an usher, I'm a board member, I'm a big giver, I lead worship, I have the gift of hospitality. Paul would say to that, that's nice, but, but did you in your label receive the Holy Spirit when you came to faith? Because that's the question, because you can be all of those things 
and not receive the Holy Spirit, which is the bottom line. If you and your label didn't receive the life of God in your soul, then you're headed for big trouble, no matter what you think you are and tell other people you are. Uh, Paul is looking for clarity, so this is what he's saying. Do you guys know the Lord? Hey, uh, have you been raised to new life? Have you been born again? Now, why did Paul feel the need to ask Christian disciples if they were Christian disciples? Because he had reason to suspect they weren't, in the fullest sense of the word. Maybe they were on their way, but... Uh, something was missing. And what gave them away? Well, maybe something they said, their choice of words, their vocabulary, the, the way they talked about their lives, their priorities, <laughs> uh, their outlook, their focus, their attitude, their countenances. You know, it doesn't take long to know where a person's coming from. A couple words here and there, a sentence or two, and we know what's going on on the inside. How do we know that? Well, Jesus said that. From the overflow of your heart, your lips speak. So all we need to know is listen to you for a little bit, and we know what's really, truly going on. So he's listening. Or more so, uh, probably, it's not what he heard them say. It's how he felt in his heart. Romans, uh, here, Paul writing by the Spirit of God, he says... The Spirit of God testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. That's Romans 8 and 16. In other words, he's saying God's Spirit bears witness to our spirit, convincing us in our hearts that we belong to God. Now, isn't that true? That the same Spirit that bears witness to our spirit, when we're in the presence of others, he bears that same witness to us that they belong to him as well. In other words, we pretty much know if you have the Spirit of God, you pretty much are aware of somebody who also has the Spirit of God in your presence. I can't tell you how many times that happens, and you know it too. Uh, if you've ever been abroad and you've met uh, some uh, foreign Christians, uh, we were in Japan once, a team of us. We were at Okada-san's house, Mrs. Okada, and she told her son, who spoke English, the translator, tell the team, I don't understand a word you're saying, but I can smell the fragrance of Christ. You see, this fragrance, Paul did not smell he did not sense that. I mean, I could go on. I mean, I'm thinking of this thing where it, at Heald College, where I worked for eight years while I was pastoring here, um, I was in the passing uh, period, and uh, there were, it was jammed, and everybody's going to their classrooms, and there was a guy in stride with me, a young man, a student, and I am walking with him, and we're kind of in step with each other, and he is humming, but he's humming how great the love of God, how, how what is that song? That just sounded like <laughs> Okay. <laughs> he was 
humming a Christian chorus. <laughs> Which I knew. And so how deep the Father's love. And so we, I don't look at him on purpose, and I start humming with him. And we're walking, 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 and then he's playing the game too. He's not going to look. And we're both getting louder and louder and louder. We get to the T the where we have to turn, and we stop, and we look at each other and hug. A huge <laughs> hug, you know. See, what is going on there? We didn't know each other. We didn't say a word, but we sing the same song Christians do. And from our hearts, it overflows and emanates, and we recognize that. And it's a song these disciples were not singing. They did not know it yet. And so that's a concern. He says, has the Holy Spirit given you a new song? Who is the Holy Spirit? Well, God comes as a package of three. He's three and one. He's one. He expresses himself in three distinct persons called the Trinity. Now, Jesus refers to God's spirit as the paraclete in Greek. It means one who comes alongside to help. And that word can mean comfort or to guide or to exhort, to encourage And so that's his character. But he's the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, the Holy Spirit's job, really, if you want to be technical about it, he's the agent by which we are raised to new life. He's the one who enters us as God's Spirit, as the Spirit of Christ. God's Spirit comes into us and makes us alive, raises us to a life that can never die. The mystery of all mysteries, how God can be, Three, yet one. I think what can help us, and I've said this before, is that we are made in his image. And when he makes us in Genesis 1 and 2, he says, let us, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, make man in our collective one image. Up from the dust comes what? A three in one. Body, soul, and spirit. And we know we're body, soul, and spirit because Paul says we're body, soul, and spirit in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23. So that really helps me. I may, the triune God, triune, three parts, one, makes us in his image triune man. Three, one. You get my body's not my spirit, my spirit's not my soul, as intricate as that sounds and confusing. But they're not. And if you try to separate them, they're distinct. If you try to pull them apart, you got a dead man, right? It's the same with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You cannot separate them ever. In fact, the Jews said, God is our Father. God the Father is our Father to Jesus. We don't need you. He says, ah, I'm afraid to tell you, you can't have God the Father without God the Son. And we come together, and I and the Father are one, he said. And so this is a mystery when we get to heaven, we'll be able to understand it uh, a lot better. We cannot do spiritual theological trigonometry with these brains. Uh, but when we get to heaven, like C.S. Lewis says, which I mention often, our first two words will be, of course. <laughs> of course, of course. Uh, yeah, so God the Father. God the Father initiates the plan. He sends the Son. God the Father sends God the Son executes the plan, dies for our sins. God the Spirit makes it all happen. 
he raises us to new life. Now, you wouldn't be wrong if you said, God saved me, Uh, the Lord raised me to life, the Spirit answered my prayers. You wouldn't be wrong. You could pray to any of them. Holy Spirit, I just pray that you can. So, one God, three persons, and they all sort of have their specialty, if I can say that. Now, uh, the, the facilitator seems to be lacking and haven't, hasn't facilitated salvation in these 12 would-be disciples. So uh, he does, Paul does something, and I want you to pay attention and notice, and I, I want you to imitate him. When you're given a questionable situation like that, where you can't find a spiritual pulse, then you start poking around, doing a little digging. He wants some clarity. He's not afraid to risk offending them, hurt their feelings by asking a question that seems to cast doubt on the validity of their claim. They say, yeah, we're followers, we're disciples. And, 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 and he says, uh, can we talk about that? Uh, because uh, I'm not so sure. You see, the bottom line, the gospel is we need to be spiritually resuscitated. If the Holy Spirit in your conversion, when you believed, when you raised your hand, you came forward or whatever it is you did, quietness of your own bedroom or wherever it happened, if what happened (laughs) didn't include the Holy Spirit in a supernatural way entering into you and raising you up to new life, then nothing happened of significance. And that's because of the nature of the problem. So let's do salvation 101 right now. It's called soteriology. Here it is. From the Greek word soter, which means savior. All right? So it's a big fancy word that just means the the science, (laughs) the study of salvation. So here's four scriptures that are really important in the process. This explains everything and why the question is asked. Here's how it started. The Lord God formed us from the dust of the ground and he breathes life into us. So now we have a spirit that's connected to his spirit and it's eternal. All right? That's why Adam had eternal life. You see? So spirit, breathe, connected to God. Two, he says, warning, don't ever disconnect from the source of life because that would mean death. So disconnecting would be joining ranks with the evil one and doing your own thing and disobeying me. And the day you do that, you're going to die. Now what happened when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was pleasing to the eye and good for wisdom? She took some and ate it. She did what God said, don't do, or you're going to die. And she did it. Now she has to die spiritually. And so to her husband who was with her and ate it as well. So what happened? They disconnected. The spirit in them, the spirit in God. And now they're spiritually dead on the inside. And who do they give birth to? Us. What, what, what's our condition? As mom and dad, so to the babies spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2. We are dead in our sins. So therefore, 
the way to get back to God and heaven has nothing to do with good or bad. It has everything to do with being resuscitated by being the breath of God coming in from above and making us born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. And nothing says it better than when Jesus comes into the room after sins are paid for, which was caused the death in the first place. So if we can pay for those sins, the wages of sin is death, then death would be irrelevant because they're paid for. And Jesus said they're paid for. It is finished is an accounting term, which means it's paid for. Okay, so after he pays for sins, he comes into the room. What does he do? He says, now... I breathe life into you. And he breathes on them. Look at that. Receive the Holy Spirit. So he relights the pilot light. The generator kicks on. And there we have it. We've been restored to life. And that's what saves you. No behavior. Has nothing to do with behavior. Now, because you have the Holy Spirit, the behavior, the repentance, the good things we do now will be evidence that the light came on that the fire is within, that the Holy Spirit, that we did in fact receive the Holy Spirit when we believed. So we can go back to the text here. So, yeah, uh, how's he breathed life into you, he says. Did you guys come alive? We were dead in our sins, you know. And they say, here's their answer. No, takers, their answer. No, he hasn't. Super honest. And then they go cut above, which is so rare. Not only hasn't he come in, we didn't even know he was out there. (laughs) I love that. Now, a lot of times when you sense there's no real genuine spiritual pulse, when you're talking to someone who seems all spiritual and religious, but you're not feeling it, you ask them. Did you get filled with the Holy Spirit? Are you like a Christian? Oh, yes. Oh, brother. So you got filled with the Holy Spirit. Everything with Jesus and God and Buddha and the universe are all at peace with me. Yes, I've been filled with the Holy Spirit. So it doesn't take a Christian too long to understand that sometimes when they say they're filled with the Spirit, it has nothing to do with holiness, the Holy Spirit at all. They're filled with a different kind of spirit, a spirit that is from the world. And so they make no bones about it. We didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. Okay, so here's what he says. Tell me about your testimony. How'd you come to be a disciple? The teachings of John the Baptist, that's what we were involved in. And now some people think, and some pastors teach, Uh, that these guys were already Christians, they just lacked the power and the fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit. Now, um, I don't think that's possible because how can you be a Christian without the Holy Spirit, number one? And, uh, and, And more compelling than that, he says, oh, John the Baptist, and then he clarifies to them, oh, that was all about repentance, but John was telling people, look, verse 4, John was telling people, schooling them, John told them that they had to believe in one who was coming. That would be Jesus. That's where you're falling short. So therefore, I baptize you into the name of Jesus when they're now trusting in Jesus who they hadn't done 
who they hadn't trusted uh, before this. They're like I said, they're heading in the right direction. But you know, to die at the threshold in your sins because you're striving to repent and be a good person, and that's exactly what they were caught up doing. Now, if you understand John the Baptist's ministry and hear his teaching, which you're about to see, then you'll understand exactly what I'm saying. Take a look at this. His ministry was to prepare the way for the Lord. He wasn't the Messiah, and he didn't preach the gospel. He, he preached part A of the gospel. Part A is the bad news. We'll take a look at what I'm talking about and see why these guys were falling short. John went into all the country uh, surrounding the Jordan. They're preaching a baptism of repentance means change your ways for the forgiveness of sins heading toward that, right? If you don't have faith in Jesus, you can repent all you want, but you're missing the most important part. So John says to the crowds, you brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, fear of God, generating repentance and conviction of your sin. You better do something. That's the point of John the Baptist's ministry, to stir you up, to want to find help and refuge in a savior. Produce fruit, change your ways, and live your life in such a way that shows you've repented. The ax is coming. It's at the root of the tree. That stands for people. And every person that doesn't produce good behaviors, godly behaviors, will be cut down and thrown into the fire. This is not the gospel yet. It's part A. You need the whole thing. He goes on. What should we do now? Now, here are your 12 guys who hear bits and pieces of this teaching. This is 20 years earlier. They hear bits and pieces of John the Baptist's teaching, and they're disciples of this teaching. What should we do then? How do we save ourselves? Anyone who has two shirts should share with one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Is that how to get saved? No, it's not. It's part A. It's to show you, look what you do. You're greedy. You don't like to share. What's wrong with you? God is not pleased that you're a hoarder and greedy. And he goes on. Even tax collectors were there to be baptized. What should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he said. Then some soldiers asked him, and how about us? Don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. So what he's doing here, this is who you are. This is what you do. And you need to change. But how are you going to change if you don't have the power to do so? So they're just headed to frustration and fear. The ax is coming. What should we do? And then he tells them to do something that they can't do without the power of the Holy Spirit. This is John's preparation for the fullness of the gospel in Christ. And he did tell them, one is coming who you have to trust. And he does mention the Holy Spirit. So somebody's not listening to the teacher there because he did talk about the Spirit. The people were waiting expectantly. Are you the Messiah? John says, no, I baptize you with water. Somebody's coming way more worthy than me. I can't even untie his shoes. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
when you put your faith and trust in him, that's the piece that was missing. And so these guys are all about their works and their behavior, and they're studying all the repentance scriptures and all of this stuff. But as Paul said, he actually was telling people to put their faith in the one who's coming. And so they're like, oh, we get that. And then they're baptized and the lights come on. We've been busy repenting. We've been trying to be generous and completely honest and and never speaking ill of anybody and how frustrating that is. And now we can rest in God's love and be fully immersed in the power of the Holy Spirit and they're baptized. Now let's talk about post-baptism behavior here especially in the first century. Two things come out. They speak in tongues and they prophesy. Let's talk about the second one here. First, prophesy. prophesying is, uh, of course, when God gives the ability for uh, a one of his people to speak about something in a predictive sense, something's coming. Uh, in, a, in a New Testament sense, you had Agabus, who had that particular gift and that particular flavor of the gift, the predictive element, where he, in a home fellowship group of sorts, Paul the Apostle was there, and he said, you know, the Holy Spirit is telling me, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be arrested and handed over to the Romans. And uh, 10 verses later, Paul arrives in Jerusalem. He's arrested and handed over to the Romans. Now, in the way that it's used more frequently in the New Testament. It's nothing to do about prediction, but the word means to proclaim God's word. So when God enables anybody to take the word of God and and proclaim it in such a way that it strengthens and encourages, corrects and exhorts somebody, the gift of prophecy is happening there. Only we would call it maybe the gift of teaching in our way of understanding. But just so you know, that's exactly what's going on here because uh, interestingly, it's how Paul defines prophecy in the Bible. Listen to this. He says uh, to the Corinthians, you all should Uh, want the gift of prophesying, he said, because the one who prophesies, and I'm quoting chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians and verse 3, the one who prophesies strengthens others, encourages them, and comforts them. So these guys didn't get baptized and come up and start predicting things. Because that's just silly, all right? That's not what happened. But what they did do is they got up there so filled with joy. We're out from under the axe. The axe was coming, and now someone got axed for me, and now I'm free of that. And they start proclaiming, great is the Lord and worthy to be praised. Come magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. These are all those, the words that were coming forth. And wouldn't you be glad to, wouldn't you proclaim God's word in your heart after knowing I can't be good and there's a threat hanging over my head and I try and I try and I try and I keep doing the same old sins over and over and over again. It's hard even with the Holy Spirit. Try doing that without the Holy Spirit. And so the shame, the guilt, the frustration, the impending doom, that's all a gift from the disciple of John the Baptist. And so uh, they're 
prophesying, uh, in a sense, uh, just so happy that, listen, they realize Jesus, as Paul's explaining the gospel to them, that Jesus now, the one who's generous and shares with all, the one who doesn't bow before the idol of money, the one who's completely honest in every transaction, the one who never lies, never slanders, never gossips, he lives within them. He is all that, all that God requires. He's done all that God's required for us. And he's fulfilled all that God's required for me and you, and now lives in us. Christian, listen, he didn't just die for you. He lived for you so that he lived the perfect life that God required of you. Check, Christ is in me. And that perfection is applied to my account when I believe. And my punishment that I deserve, he died and paid for that. Check. And so these guys are realizing that they're filled with joy and the Holy Spirit's enabling them to speak in tongues. Now, I think that they're speaking in tongues uh, to give them evidence that there was some confusion before, but there's no confusion anymore. There's this evidence about speaking tongues. Let's talk about tongues. The early days, this gift, it's listed in 1 Corinthians 12, note takers, and then explained in 1 Corinthians 14 and how it should be used. It seems in the early days uh, that this gift of speaking in tongues uh, happened and accompanied conversions. So when somebody believed in the early days, it seems that they were also given this gift of tongues. What is the gift of tongues? It's called a gift, as I said, and it's when the Holy Spirit enables a Christian to speak in an unknown language for the purpose of building themselves up in the faith because that's what it says in the Bible, the purpose is. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 4, whoever speaks in a tongue strengthens himself in the faith. So it's God interceding in a language uh, that most people believe in this case is a heavenly language, not a known language. Now in Acts chapter 2, when the church is born on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is given They speak in tongues, but they speak in languages, known languages, like German and French and Swahili. Wherever these Jews who were traveling to Jerusalem, wherever their natural home uh, languages and dialects, God gave them the ability to speak in those languages the praises of God to confirm the truthfulness of the gospel. Peter stands up in the midst of that miracle and preaches the gospel and 3,000 of them get saved, you see. But it seems like it's more the tongues of angels and the tongues of heaven that is going on when we're talking about this gift here. And so um, the purpose is clear, uh, to build build yourself up, right? And so what about uh, today? Well, in our denomination and in my experience and um, in light of what Paul says about tongues, I believe that every Christian should ask God for the gift of tongues. The problem, the confusion with the charismatic movement that started around the 70s and the 80s is semantics. So what the charismatic 
Christians wanted to know of another Christian is, do you speak in tongues? Instead, they asked this question, which is erroneous. Have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? That's a shame because lots of people are filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, every Christian is full of the Holy Spirit or you're not a Christian. And there are people who are full, full of the Holy Spirit who don't pray in tongues. So it was a wrong question to ask. They should have just asked, hey, it's the charismatic movement. Do you speak in tongues? Do you have the gift of tongues? Instead of putting it all on, have you received the Holy Spirit? Of course they've received the Holy Spirit if you're saved. The question should have just simply been, do you, do you speak in tongues in your prayer language? That's all that needed to happen there. And so in light of these statements about tongues, and then we're going to move on and pretty much wrap things up, he who prays in a tongue strengthens himself. Whoa. Any Christian feel like they could use a little strength in the faith? I wish that you all prayed in tongues. I thank God I pray in tongues more than you all. Don't forbid people from praying in tongues. So why not ask God, hey, I'd like the gift of tongues. You, you know what we're going to do on Wednesday night, the two Wednesday nights that we have left, uh, we're going to have a Holy Spirit night. We're going to have a night, not a crazy night, not, not jumping over pews or swinging from lights. <laughs> so calm down, all ye, all ye Pentecostals. <laughs> We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to fill us, right? And why not ask him for this? And why not have the pastors laying hands on people? Why not? Why not? <laughs> Come on. Amen. Now, now, what if you're sitting out there and you say, brother, you know, the gift of tongues has ceased. You know, there's a whole denomination that's built a whole doctrine on that. And the only verse you can go to for that is when in 1 Corinthians 13... He says, you know what? Love is great because when, when love is the greatest of all gifts. So he says, instead of fighting over and, and exercising these gifts of tongues and prophecy and all of that uh, in wrong ways and being excessive, uber focused on that, he goes, I'll show you a better way, love. So he says, the greatest thing is how we love one another. And then he says, and you know why? He says, someday the gift of prophecy will be done. Hello, we won't need prophecy when God's standing there. And you won't need tongues because we'll be in heaven, right? So, so they look at that and they say, well, see, tongues will cease. And they see when we see face to face as facing the Bible, the completed canon. When we see face to face, when we have a complete Bible, these, they're called cessationists because they believe that tongues have ceased cessationists, right? So that's their theology, right? It's, it doesn't affect salvation, and so we can agree to disagree. But when I've got this, and I also got uh, the scripture about tongue ceasing face to face, when we see his face, that's the second coming, then I'm like, Let's go for it and ask God. Amen. So if you're uncomfortable with tongues, don't ask for it. <laughs> it just sort of freaks me out. And, you know, okay, that's fine. You know, I'm just saying it's available, or so it seems. Amen.
Okay, so that, so they're speaking in tongues. And so for me, why I think that God gave the gift of tongues to the first early Christians right at faith was to, to for evangelism. That, hey, this is a real deal. And you can tell if you're in or out super easy that way. Uh, so that's what I think's up there. Now, final question then. He says, have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? Has the Holy Spirit come in and raised you to new life? Well, how do I know? Well, new life should be budding up somewhere if there's indeed the Holy Spirit there. Let me close with an illustration I've used before because I love it so much. <laughs> My dad, 55 years old, thoroughly Jewish, Brooklyn-born guy. And he read the late great planet Earth about the apocalypse and boom, through bankruptcy and the book, and the Holy Spirit, he got saved. Uh, we were all in high school. I had just graduated. He came home and uh, with the Bible, started reading the Bible. Also bored and turned off and so super not interested. And he would catch me at times and start droning on about the Bible. And I was like, oh, I gotta get out of here. So I moved out, but something Something he did impacted me and rocked me and was the beginning of my conversion to Christ. Nothing he said, no scripture, no arguing, no Bible reading. It was something he did. Here's what happened. We're driving along in the car in our neighborhood, then in Santa Cruz. We came to a, a stoplight. There was a little kid on a bike. My dad goes like this, hey. Hey, to the kid. You don't know my dad. <laughs> so I say to him, I was like blown away. I just got goosebumps now because it's so not my father. And I said, do you know him? And he goes, no. I said, why did you wave to him? He goes, cute little kid on a bike. It's a nice day, feeling happy. Hey. And then he goes, did it again. Hey. I'm like, who are you? <laughs> And what happened to my father? <laughs> because this is weird. So a natural budding up from the hard dirt of the calloused heart that I knew of a man that wasn't interested in children or connecting with them. Hey, look, hey, what's up? Okay. What? He was becoming. He was becoming. Why? Because he received the Holy Spirit when he believed. Have you? Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for life, that we're not talking about some dead religion, some boring new philosophy, and some dumb list of do's and don'ts that we've got to do and got to stop doing it. We're talking about receiving the Spirit of God in our hearts that raises us to a life that's new and can never end. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.